and welcome back to another episode of the New and Improved Podcast. I, again, am Albert, your host, who is recovering. For some reason, I had a sore throat that didn't seem to go away. It could have been that I was shredding too hard on the mountain down in Colorado, but uh, I'm all better now. Man, I forgot to tell you guys, this has never really happened to me before, but um, we always joke about, you know, being the only Asian in a small town growing up and how everybody thinks that you own the Chinese restaurant. It happened to me in Denver, or Fort Collins of all places, which I still think is the whitest city in America, where I was at a sushi joint, and one of the customers, or semi-customer, gave me their dishes. So I physically took their dishes from them, not really understanding what was going on. The person kind of gave me this, like, hold on one second kind of hand gesture, and I sat there for a second, and they came up and gave me dirty dishes. And I was on my way out. And I simply just put them aside and just kind of walked out the door. It wasn't until the next day that I realized that dude thought I actually worked there. I don't know. Was it insulting? I didn't really think anything of it, but nevertheless, funny story. Okay, what's happening this week? Um, Oh, yeah, some pretty devastating things. Want to give a shout out to my friends and family out in Durban, South Africa, uh, where the KwaZulu-Natal province has been hit pretty hard with some torrential rain and flooding to the neighborhood of over 30 people reported dead. So hopefully you guys are doing okay and know that we're thinking of you. Um, Also on a world scale, the attacks on Sri Lanka and Colombo, just know that Canada's behind you, Saskatoon's thinking about you, and you guys are in our thoughts. It's happening all across the world, and I don't know if it's because of the internet that's making the world a smaller place, but it just seems like this stuff is happening every week. And it's hard to keep track, um, which is very sad because it's almost to the point where we can't give proper respects to all the victims because it's just all too common. Okay, enough of the heavy stuff. Let's move on to the podcast. And who do I have on the show today? None other than Mr. Kurt Dahl, or better known as Lawyer Drummer, as he uh, calls himself, or I don't know if he calls himself that. So Kurt and I have casually known each other for over the last 30 years um, growing up in Swift Current, but also continually running into each other over the last couple of decades. What can I say about Kurt, though? He's what most of us would say is living the dream. Um, a lawyer by day, drummer for one of Canada's favorite hard rock bands, One Bad Son, at night. So Kurt and I were also recruited this year by the Sanctum Care Groups to be one of their participants in the Survivor Challenge. Uh, coming up at the end of May. Uh, You may have heard of it. So I thought, what better way to catch up, hear tales from playing arena shows across Canada with Def Leppard, and promote our homeless challenge than a good old-fashioned podcast. So without further ado, here is my interview with Mr. Lawyer Drummer, Kurt Dahl. It's great. How's your voice, by the way? Because last time we saw it. Oh, it's way better. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can hear me, you know. Last yeah. time I was like, what was wrong with it? You just had a cold? Well, it was like strap throat. Like, so yeah, it was like a former strap throat. So it's like, you know, it just, it sounded worse than it was, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But when I saw you, because you were like almost like Buddhist, because you barely were wanting to talk. You're just kind of nodding your head. I thought this was the new Kurt. <laughs> he's like, he's fully gone Zen. <laughs> no, that's what I thought. Because sometimes you meet guys like 10 years later again, yeah. and you're like, Okay, a lot he doesn't ha- speak anymore. A lot's happened. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Anyways, Kurt, Kurt the Hurt, thanks a lot for coming on the <laughs> podcast. It's been a long time, eh? 
It's yeah. Well, it's it's an honor, man. Thanks for having me. Oh man, it's an honor for you to be on here. I said that um, I had Charlie Clark and Yan Martell, and those are guys who are Wikipedia guys. I always said like, you know, you're doing good when you have guys who are on Wikipedia, <laughs> and your band is on Wikipedia. Yeah. So. Well, you know, I may have done some of those entries like a decade <laughs> ago. So, uh, just full disclosure. So you okay? So that's my question because the first for the first time today, I just realized I could hit edit on wikipedia like there's a big pencil and so i hit it because and i was like okay i'm gonna and i was on the one bad son page right and i was like can i edit this and i so i just put a hyphen between hard and rock hard for hard rock just to see something innocuous like that yeah and i hit publish and nothing happened so i don't know why they even gave me the the options. Do you know how that whole Wikipedia well, works? I don't, but I mean, at least you could have given us like more number one singles. You know? Well, I was going to say <laughs> Kurt's just a little baby and sucks at soccer. <laughs> <laughs> because sometimes every once in a while you'll see an entry that's just totally asinine yeah, on Wikipedia. Yeah. And I don't know. Do you know how the the legality or how even the, the world of Wikipedia works. No, well, I thought like, I thought you're the guy that's more plugged into like tech. So like, we, I, I feel like you would know that more than I would. So we're sitting here going, I thought you're the expert, <laughs> you know, you, anything to do with copyright, legal law. It's just, that's all you, I, I assume Wikipedia it's should be there. my domain, but uh, yeah, no, I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, this has been good. I, we were just talking about how uh, you and I, I said, every, it seems like every 10 or 15 years, we come back into each other's lives a bit because we, I think your ex-girlfriend was friends with my roommate, Jade, and we kind of hung out in early, mid-2000s, Jade Graves. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, then you went off and became like Mick Jagger of Canada and then <laughs> finally came back. But uh, Well, yeah, it's, well, I, go, I mean, it's crazy cause for you and I, it's like it dates back to, you know, grade five and six. Because like, we played so, soccer together. That's my yeah, earliest yeah. memory. Yeah. When I moved to Saskatoon grade seven, and you know, it's like a lot of Swift Current people I never really saw again. Were you right? born in Swift then? Yeah, for sure. Okay, because my earliest memory of you is probably like with like Shane Pollock and like Ed Burgoyne. Yeah, yeah. Because they were my Irwin friends, yeah. and I was the French French immersion guy, and so we would have just hung out through those guys. But we also played soccer, and your brother Kevin was the goalie. I always remembered for our provincial team or something. So yeah, well, it's it's crazy that like. You're right. Just sort of some people just kind of, you know, your paths keep crossing, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of cool to to reconnect. But I always, you know, the fact that we always are rooted back here in Saskatoon, I think we're, you know, similar age and kind of similar group of friends. So I think it's just going to naturally happen that way. But do you remember a lot about your time in Swift? Yeah, man. Like uh, that's like sort of there's sort of like the, my life before Saskatoon and, and, and after, right? So. Yeah, Swift is like a big part of obviously who I am now. And like, what area of town did you live in? Were you behind the mall? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So what were you? I have a feeling you were kind of by the mall. Were you close? Yeah, to the right mall? on uh, Clinton Place, like right behind. Right behind and, the mall. Yeah, right behind us is like a big park where we probably played soccer. Yeah, for together. sure. Together, yeah. yeah. But because if you're right in Clinton Place, like you obviously remember, and a lot of people don't remember this because if you ever go back to Swift behind the mall. 
there are a bunch of houses now in that like condos, dirt field. Yeah. But there used to be just a massive field. Massive field, but it was a, a crazy bike jump. There's one massive bike jump that you go down the hill, and it was this like three foot incline right off the bat, and it would just send you skyrocketing. And I, so many people sprained their ankle on that thing, or or worse, yeah. Like the whole area was just like this massive field. Dirt, dirt field, right? And then yeah, the kids. W- you know, there's because it started high and it went down. It's like there's a, a hill there, right? So it's great for for biking and yeah, yeah, tobogganing and certain things like that. Yeah, yeah. And then you went. What elementary school did you go to? Uh, Central. Central. Yes. Okay. So yeah. you would have like Mrs. Pollock as your teacher. Yes. They were like my second family. Mrs. Uh, Sarson. Yeah, AJ's like, mom. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And yeah, Mr. Sarson died. Did you hear that? No, I just didn't. a few years ago. So. Oh no. Yeah, but uh, I saw. I just bumped into both of them at Cypress Hills. The like I think this summer or last summer, and they still look great. So, anyways, but you moved in grade seven, and I like obviously we didn't know each other that well, but we definitely knew who who we were. But uh, why did you end up moving to Saskatoon? Uh, just like you know, my dad worked for like this uh, you know Swift Current Ford. It was like you know auto body. And then they, they just shut down, like the guy left town with like months worth of all the employees' wages and just like went to like Mexico. So we're right before Christmas, so we're sort of like left in a lurch. And my dad ended up ended up finding a job in Saskatoon. So it was just it was just fate in a lot of ways because he applied in like Calgary and Edmonton and Regina and stuff. And so was he an auto body guy? Yeah. Oh, so yeah. um yeah, my parents are very blue collar. You know, my mom's a hairdresser and my dad's auto body and yeah, but they were, were they rooted in Swift, growing up. Yeah, for sure. And then they both just got jobs here and been here ever since. You know, nice. And, I always yeah. said the Southwest Saskatchewan produces lots of talent, and a lot of people don't really realize. You got you from Bo One Bad Son. You got Coulter Wall now. Yeah, uh, you got the Legal Wolves guys. I know that you guys are playing that show on Friday with the Legal Wolves guys. A lot of those guys are from Maple Creek. Yeah, uh, that's right. And uh, Patty Marlowe's from Swift Current. So from the San Jose Sharks slash Toronto Maple Leafs. So. Right. Yeah. Lots of talent. And, of course, greatest podcast, podcast host of all time. <laughs> oh, and that guy, Brad Wall, I forgot. Yeah, yeah he, he was texting me today, actually. Oh, really? So I've been trying to get him on, and him and I were texting, and then he ghosted me. So hopefully I can call him out right now. But he was, like, totally gung-ho to come on, but he wants to do it via phone call. And so eventually I'll get him in here. I'll wrangle him in here. Nice. So. What were you guys texting about? Uh, you know, just stuff with Coulter, because... Colder's right. a client and oh okay nice yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awesome again representing Swifty. Anyways, um, so my memory of you is from, I guess maybe two thousand and three when you guys were originally the Mother Culture. Right. Are you yeah. aware that you were in a band back then? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was like the how I became a musician and like like a real musician, you know, because mm-hmm. I sort of started playing um, drums in grade 12, which is quite late. You know, it's pretty late for the late for the party. You know, a lot of great, a lot of musicians that become quite talented start when they're like five years old or something. Right. But I was like grade 12. So I was, um, you know, a late bloomer, I would say. What got and you into it? Just the love of music. And, and in high school, it's such a tumultuous time. You know, it's like, Rock and roll just really spoke to me, like Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Neil Young, like those kind of bands, just like were everything to me. So that was the nineties. So yeah, I'm like, was, to think, were like you... high, well, I started grade twelve. You know, grade twelve was like ninety seven when I started. So you know, I guess I guess in grade nine, you just got into the whole Seattle grunge yeah. scene, right? And that's 
grade nine again. It's just that's that Nirvana, time where that Stone Temple Pilots, everything. Yeah, okay, yeah, for sure. Allison Chains, and so it, it's sort of like by the end of grade twelve or getting close to the end of high school, it's like I just wanted to play music. You know, I just had this real sort of urge to to actually learn how to play it. Right, so started playing, and then shortly after we formed a band. And that was the Mother Culture. So it was just outside, just out of high school, and like I didn't know how to play. I had no clue how to play drums you know we just kind of like i just pretended and kept practicing and next you know we had a band and, and things sort of just went from there you know it just sort of snowballed and then with mother culture i remember you guys were like the official almost band of the university i uh, was there maybe a few you're in 81 or 80 81 yeah. yeah so i was a couple years older than you and uh, i just remember hearing your band name all the time and i remember was it chris chris your lead singer right yeah and you guys were just just killing it in uh, the mid 2000s from there like anything you people usually have one or two bands or three or four bands in their life um you moved on to the one bad son what was the transition from what mother culture to one bad son well i mean like like most young bands do uh we just we we crashed and burned you know it's like you know you're 18 19 20 years old four you get four people like that in, in a band and and things are, are bound to implode, you know, <laughs> and, and they did. Right. And, uh, so then there's some time off. I, I played in another band called the river boys, which is with a couple of guys here. They're old, a bit older than me, but just great musicians, Mark Kleiner and, and Tim Murphy. Tim Murphy is now like the, you know, Tim Murphy is Murphy and company, the law firm that I work for. Oh, really? Yeah. So he, he's, he's my boss in a way, quote unquote. <laughs> um, and then just sort of like, Went, uh, you know, I started law school, mm-hmm. um, just had some, took time off here and there and like kind of knew that rock and roll was like my life and music was my life. So you took time off for the band just to go to law school? Well, I took more so, I took, I graduated from, I did commerce and then took time off to try to become a rock star, right. find the right band. Couldn't find that, that band. Went, went into law school, went and wrote the LSAT on a whim and... Did, like didn't really prep for it. Just wrote the LSAT, passed it. Did quite well. Like you know, it's it's not a pass for it's just like a mark, you know. And did quite well on it. So I was like, okay, maybe there's something there. Tried to find a band again, you know, the right band to like become a, a rock star with. Couldn't find that. So went into law school, and just sort of on a whim. Like you know, I read so many biographies about musicians growing up. You know, all my idols, mm-hmm. and like, the common thread with all these bios was that. They got screwed over by someone in a suit, you know, by someone who they they didn't know that the musician didn't know the right things about the contract, signed a bad deal, boom, and, and it's like it ruined their life, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I thought if I went to law school, I could maybe prevent that. So went to law school, and then One Bad Son sort of came about in the middle of law school. What was the genesis of One Bad Son? You know, uh, so I'm mid law school and realizing like this is interesting stuff, but it's like I'm not ready to give up the rock and roll dream yet, and I was um, serving at a restaurant in town on 8th Street, the Granary. Oh, yeah. And, Remy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, Shane, who you know, was our singer, came in and, you know, I knew him from other bands and he knew me from other, you know, from the mother culture. And I always wanted him to be my singer and he always wanted me to be his drummer. So, um, so when you, it's almost like when you're dating other people. Exactly. You're just and, waiting and, and for and you guys, each other to break up and then finally the timing's right. Yeah, 100%. And uh, so we just started chatting, you know, I think it was, 
you know, just like I, I came up to him and just mentioned like we, we should jam sometime. And he's like, yeah, it'd be great. And it was like a week later, we started jamming with our guitar player who he, Hicks, who Shane had sort of been jamming with, I guess. And mm-hmm. um, he's like, yeah, I got this guy who doesn't say much and, and always wears a Maple Leafs hat. And he loves Metallica, but, but he's like, awesome. But he's like, he's got some riffs, you know. And, <laughs> and so that was kind of the, it. Really came about innocently, and that was two thousand and four. So I graduated law school '05. So it's like mid law school. Not the time you think I'm gonna like form a band that I'd be with for fifteen years and, and going yeah. strong. Um, but I, I think it was symbolic of at the time. It's like you know I wasn't one of those people that just wanted to that knew they wanted to be a lawyer from age fifteen or you something. Fell right? into it. Yeah, I mean. Kind of like it, it's sort of like this that whole thing is was it meant to be or was it just all a bunch of random events? Who knows, right? Um, but yeah, so OBS formed and it was just we jammed once and it wasn't like you always hear these stories, uh, people like to sort of em- embellish and say, like, the first jam we knew it was going to be just magic, you know. And it wasn't that, but it was I knew that something was there, there was some sort of magic, but it didn't come easily because we all came from very different backgrounds mm-hmm. musically. You know, um, I was more, I loved all like Zeppelin, The Who, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden. And, you know, Shaner and Hicks were more into like heavier stuff, right? So yeah. The Megadeth. The, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and heavier, you know. So yeah. it's like now if you look back at our 15 years run, it makes sense. Because you can kind of hear like there's the heavier elements, but also like more, you know, not catchy, but just more rock yeah. mixed with metal. And you end up with hard rock right which is what obs is with the with the hyphen you know <laughs> hard rock yeah. um you know it's uh but anyways yeah so it's, it's like anything in life at the time it, we had no clue what we were doing and it didn't make any sense but when you look back it seems like a, a well-told story you know oh, for sure and that no band comes together this there's no lou perlman piecing together you guys in saskatoon it's everybody has to find their own way and eventually you guys do and and you did um from your, the, the, my first memory of One Bad Son, I remember going to Amigos once, and you guys are playing. And I think it might have been one of your, like, you guys were in your infancy. And we were heavy and probably shitty. Uh, you know what? You played, <laughs> here's the thing, you played Patience. Nice. Which is yeah, yeah. all time, probably top 10 song for me. Great song. And as soon as you started playing it, I'm like, okay, here it goes. I don't know how these guys are going to be able to hit that last part. And you guys nailed it. Like, and it, somebody told me, that your singer was like could hit the highs, and in when you're playing rock, like the ability to hit high is like one of those kind of distinguishing things. You think yeah. about Vince Neil, you think about Axl Rose, you think about even Scott Whalen. Certain guys can kind of hit this certain octave, and um, <clears throat> and when he hit it, I was like, oh, okay, there's something there. Uh, and I yeah. listened to a lot of Saskatchewan Saskatoon bands, and a lot of them did sound the same. But I remember the minute you guys played that song, I'm like, okay, the fact that you can even just do that, there's got to be like a world of music that you can play from there, right? Yeah, that's cool. You were there, and 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 thank you on that comment. I mean, that's, I think that's what we sensed that there was something there, but we had to work hard to kind of find our sound, right? Right. And I think you're right. Also, your point that a lot of bands, you know, there's a certain sound in this area, you know. Yep. And a lot of bands fit into that sound and we didn't we, we've always stood out you know whether we like it or not right mm-hmm. but that's what you need to do to be able to make it onto that next level right right if you sound and again that's my complaint right now is that i can't tell who's who now in music especially you just put it on spotify it all sounds like it's coming from the same 
two studios in, in, right. in LA or something. Well, so. especially with certain genres, right? Yeah. Like if you look at country, there's a lot of just pop country that's like all yeah. it's very formulaic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Same with rock. I think active rock is very mm-hmm. very yeah, you get the two producers and then do your thing. Right? Yeah, but it's it's a field where they have to now they're forced even more now to try to make money. You know, and they try to squeeze everything they got out of this formula until the next one comes along. So eventually it becomes like a stamp. So it's you can kind of tell where they're coming from. But you guys, when after that Amigo show, eventually things started becoming tighter and you started becoming bigger. And there's a time where all of a sudden I remembered hearing you on the radio. And again, your your music's not supposed to appeal to my demographic anymore. I'm in the design field at like a dot com. And so I'm not a rock one oh two guy, but I remember yeah. when you got on to the radio station, uh, it was a big deal because out of all the radio stations or all the bands that are in Saskatoon, a lot of them don't make the radio, like local yeah, one, which yeah. is unfortunate, right? That there's a lot of good music, but yet they're also business. They need to pull yeah. in what, you know, will bring them listeners. But you guys made it. And you guys had a song on the radio. And I remember from that minute, I'm thinking, okay, maybe they have something else commercially. Yeah, and that's a great point. I mean, that was the changing, that was the turning point in our career for sure. And it's like, the funny thing is it took eight years to get there, you know, like eight years of being in a band. So it was eight years from starting till you got on the radio. Well, not exactly. I mean, we had like a minor little hit, regional hit, we always joke, um, you know, the song Stampede Al- Wrestling Alive and exactly. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. We weren't quite Ultimate Warrior, you know. Yeah. Um so it's like Alive in Texas, I think like so we formed his band in two thousand four. That maybe got a bit of radio play in two thousand six. So that was, you know, fairly quick. It kind of pointed that we could be onto something. Mm-hmm. But it was like a five and a half minute song and like the longest intro and outro ever. It's like, you know, all these things you don't do when you're trying to get on radio. But we didn't know or care. But um but it wasn't until we had like I'm talking about our first breakthrough scarecrows and that was 2012. So that was eight years after we formed and that was the first hit outside of Saskatchewan. So mm-hmm. yeah, you might've heard us earlier, but the real success or the real breakthrough, I guess, was, was having a hit across the country. Right. And that, that was like they, the stations wouldn't play it because they didn't know who we were. Like they didn't. And they, the, I think, that's a big hurdle. Like why but were you signed down under, under a label at the time? Yeah. So we got signed six or four records in Vancouver. We lived, we moved to Vancouver as a band. All of us went out there and my wife and I moved out. Like we got married and then moved to Vancouver like a month later. And, in 2012 kind of thing. Uh, or, 2010. Okay. And then, um, took us two years of just, you know, sort of the dark years, I, I think. So you're gigging out there though. Yeah. But no one really cared. You know. Did you have to work a second job at the time, or are you doing legal work? Yeah, that's when I became an entertainment lawyer. Like started. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so I graduated law school, took more time off with the band. Thought that that was going to be like the, the breakthrough time. And were there times where you're close to calling it with the band and saying that okay, guys, we put enough time here, or were you guys just like, no, we're just going to keep going? Yeah, well, I think. I mean, I never thought that I was going to hang it up. Um, I think we all just had a lot of we're all quite naive, you know, and, and, and also hungry, you know, and those two things are really powerful when you, when you put them together. And, um, so looking back, there was times where like, you know, we, we start gigging, doing tours and like drive like 10 hours to play to 20 people and make, well, like lose money. Like you'd have to 
pay for your beer tab and lose money the night, you know. Um, looking back, I think there's, we would never do it again because like now, you know, but now we've been through it. It's like that, that's what got us here, right? Everybody has a bad gig, right? I remember DJing, you get so hyped and you don't know who's going to walk through the door and sometimes it's going to be a thousand people and sometimes it literally is 50 girls on a stagette and that's it and then they're gone at 9 p.m. Well, that sounds way better than any, a lot of the gigs we played. Okay, what was, your, yeah. what was your worst gig um, that you can clearly remember? Uh, well, there was, we, I mean, we went one time to Grand Prairie and, and now it's like one of our best markets. Like Grand Prairie, it's like they love us there and we love them. But we drove... You know, it's a 10 hour drive in Saskatoon. We drove there and it was sort of like, we'll pay you whatever the door is. And, and the door wasn't much. And everyone was really drunk. It was like a Saturday. And and we t- I told the, the owner of the bar that we'd, we'd do a lot of covers just so we'd get the gig. Mm-hmm. But it was a lie. Like we, we did a few covers, but. Oh, you didn't know that song? No, that was a huge song over yeah. in Europe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so people were getting a bit restless and, and they just kept yelling. So one guy yelled for Megadeth in between songs, and, and then a girl yelled for Alan Jackson. So we knew that we were effed because, you know, it's either Megadeth or Alan Jackson and, and nothing in between, you know. Uh, so we, we knew we couldn't, we couldn't please the crowd, right? Were there um, a lot of people there? No, no, there wasn't much, and they were kind of just angry that we weren't playing covers. So, uh, But the, th- the thing is, though, with night, I remember that night... We all looked at each other and knew that the audience was shit, and and we weren't really we, we we couldn't control that. But what we could control is like what's the vibe between the four of us on stage and mm-hmm. whether or not we have fun and and push through it, right? And I think that's the thing with there's so many we we have hundreds like seriously hundreds of, of shows like that where it's like what the hell are we doing? Um, and we had to always look within and be like, let's just play a killer time. rock show and play the songs we love and we wrote and play them like we, like we mean it. And that's why we could do that and people would not know what the songs are and they'd want Megadeth or Alan Jackson and we'd give them our music but with conviction and with excitement. And eventually that caught on. People were like, these guys are, these guys are good. They're having, they're having fun. Like maybe we should have fun too, right? Right. Um, do that for eight years and then write a radio hit and then maybe you got a chance, you know? So is that the formula in your head? Is that okay do most musicians have to concede to the fact that they have to write a, a hit um, or some concede to the, the general populace of what they think is maybe a little bit against the grain of what they normally would write? Well, I, we never wrote what was against what we would normally write, like, or we never wrote things that we didn't believe in. But I guess if you write songs long enough and have some sort of sense of, of melody and songwriting, eventually you'll stumble upon something that, that, should connect with a lot of people, you know, with a bit of luck and a whole lot of hard work, you know. So, so as a group, do you guys write all your music together? Yep. Okay, so Scarecrows, for example, was was that arguably one of your biggest hits? I saw on uh, Spotify that right now your your biggest song is the, uh, and Spotify might be a bad measure, it might be a totally different audience that listens to Spotify, but uh, was it Psycho Killer? Right, yeah. But when you're writing, like, obviously the Talking Heads cover, but if you're talking about Scarecrows, when you're writing it, how good of an understanding do you think you have of that you have some sort of hit on your hands with that track? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, these kind of things, you know, it, I think it's like 
I don't know what's going to be like a massive hit with the masses, but like I can sort of tell what a good song is, you know, and I think that those are two different things, right? Like, and this is what our producer, Danny Craig, t- said to us years ago. He, he produced that record. He's like, I can't tell what a hit is, but I can tell you what a good song is. And and because the hit factor is is sort of up to fate and the universe and all that stuff yeah. and, and luck and all that stuff, right? But a good song is a good song and people will eventually find it if, if given a bit of luck. Um, so... I think with Scarecrow's, the second, like I heard Hicks strumming and, and Shaner had a, a vocal melody, I was like, I, I knew something was there. It's that sort of magic, right? And yeah. you're always craving that, like a like a junkie, you know, like as a songwriter, it's like you're always looking for that that magic. and That where it just locks in and you're like, this is new, it sounds unique, but it's catchy. And some, yeah, it speaks to some sort of, some sort of So is that just you guys riffing thing? around and then somebody's just singing over top of it or are you kind of... Do you guys sit down and actually pen like things on a treble clef or? No, usually it's like we start with guitar riffs. You know that's kind of our, our, how we write. Like, and all four of us will bring in guitar riffs. So it's like, here's something. What do you think? And then, and then if it inspires something, then we, Shane and I might start just throwing some melodies over, and I'll throw on a drum beat and that kind of stuff, right? So mm-hmm. it's not. We don't usually start with like lyrics are kind of the last thing. Yeah. But like just melody, just words or noises over top of a guitar. Because it's like, different than like hip hop or rap. A lot of those guys are just writing lyrics and then to find the bed track, it's a different thing. But in rock, it's a lot to do with the riff, right? Yeah. And then what that riff does, right? Like you can tell just like when uh, we had, when Hicks brought in the riff for Raging Bolt, you know, it was like oh, yeah. our only number one. It's like when I heard that riff, it's like, I was like, something's there. And something sounds just a modern, but like cool. And like, I can't, I'm a horrible singer. Um, I can't, you know, if we're strumming a song, if it's, if it's even something I've written on the guitar, like I sing over it and it sounds like garbage, but I've got a good ear for things that are catchy. Like I can hear, I can hear something that sounds great and could have a good melody. You so know, you play so. guitar then too? Yeah. Um, could you, are you good enough to play on stage? Yeah. Okay. That's cool. When did you teach yourself that? Uh, that's what, that was my first instrument. It was actually guitar before drums. And Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't very good at it. I mean, I'm not good at it now, but I can strum the, the major chords. You so know? you're like a major band, like drumming-wise. Like, where do you rank yourself? Are you like, do you consider yourself now pretty good after drumming for 20 years? Well, that's a hell of a question. But I, I've never... Yeah, <laughs> I remember one time um, I was a, a sales rep. And when I was 22, my very first job, and the, the the dad figure that was like the senior sales rep who I'd travel Western Canada with, yeah, he's an awesome dude. I bet you he's retired by now. He was the father-in-law of the lead singer, lead guitarist for Nickelback, and he would tell me all these Nickelback stories. And he's like, "Yeah, you know what? It's like I'm still teaching him like a couple licks here and there. Like he's like he's he's just okay." <laughs> and this is like probably when they were kind of semi-big. Yes. But, you know, you've uh, worked in music long enough to know that you don't always have to be the best hired gun to make it, right? I mean, I, yeah, I'll leave that, to, I'll leave that question for others. Like, But to could answer, you feel like you could drum for a lot of bands now? Like, Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've done it long enough. Like, I work my ass off at it, you know, and um, it's all those hours you put in when no one's watching, right, and no one cares. It's those eight years before we ever got that first hit... And that's where I put in all, like, put in the crazy hours to get to develop the chops, right? Yeah. 
and now it's like muscle memory. So, mm-hmm. you know, but if I take two months off from touring, like, you know, I got to go back in and, and reteach the, the muscles. Right. But, um, I, I love it. And drumming's like, it's like a, I don't have to think about it. Like I just feel it. And that's a real gift. Cause you know, it's, I never, I'm never thinking on stage. That's the, that's the one hour of my day or, or week or month where I'm just like not thinking, just, just feeling right. And that's, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a real gift. I remember, I haven't seen you guys play live in a long time. Maybe I'll come see you on Friday. I was think, hoping to go there, but I remember you were like the Tasmanian devil up there. Like your shirt's off, you're sweating. You look like you just went nine rounds. Are you still like that? Like you're, you're going balls to the wall when I remembered, are you still going hard on stage like that? Yeah. So that's, you're the heartbeat there. And everybody, cause I, I was talking to somebody and they're like, yeah, you're like the, almost the centerpiece when you kind of like watch the band, like you, sometimes the, the drummer can be tucked away in the corner in the, in the background and look like a studio drummer, but oh, yeah. you're just as mar- much part of the show is what I remembered. So, yeah. Well, whoever said it to you, like, uh, that's nice of them. I think that was Ed Burgoyne. I think he said that a long time ago, saying nice, that. He's yeah. like, yeah, watch Kurt Dahl. He's like sweating a storm up. But uh, that's cool to see that you're still, uh, he's got the energy of a 20-year-old. <laughs> I do. I, I, well, It's funny how the crowd can wood, do that, yeah. though. Yeah. It's yeah. the energy, like just from DJing, man. I, I feel like I've pulled some weird stunts behind there just because you're feeding off the energy of the crowd. You f- I can see why Steve Aoki just goes bananas on stage. It's just, if you had thousands of people just like chanting and the music is just behind you at full tilt. Yeah. It's nothing like it, eh? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's one of those things like when you're on stage, it's, it's why everyone just like, it's why musicians just crave that all the time. You know, like it's, there is something magical about it for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we've talked about the worst gig. Obviously, you've hit a certain level of success with the band, and uh, you've been able to play on some pretty big stages. Uh, maybe let's just talk about some of your biggest memories of after you know you've kind of hit it. I think the big, the biggest one that stands out is like the first time we toured arenas uh, with Def Leppard, and it was just like we always had it's always been our dream to play arenas, right? Like you, you join a rock band. It's like, you don't want to just play clubs the rest of your life. You want to play arenas and play to 10,000, 15, 20,000 people a night. Like that's what's right? the difference feeling wise. Well, I mean, arenas, it's not quite as intimate, right? It's not quite as immediate, right? Like in a, in a, if you're playing Amigos, you get that, you can see people, right? Like they can, you can, you, see you, their can you can smell their BO, right? Like yeah. the, you can feel their sweat, right? And that's, there's something cool about that. Um, but arenas, it's just like the sheer bigness of it. I mean, and you're walking around backstage or like, you know, in the back of the arena with all the like same place that all the NHL teams play. Yeah. You know, it's like, um, and our dressing rooms for all the, those, those arena tours were, or shows were the dressing rooms of like, yeah, the Calgary Flames, Edmonton Oilers, uh, Winnipeg Jets, Vancouver Canucks. Like it's pretty badass, right? Mm -hmm. So you're, you're, you're in the big time. Um, but I remember with Def Leppard, it was like, you know, the first time we got on stage and did sound check and I just hit the kick drum. It was just like, it was seriously like a bomb going off, you know, just like, and we never, we'd had bigger venues, you know, like mm-hmm. the O'Briens or like the Coors events, like those kind of 1000 people. But 
20,000 people, that's a different ball game, you know? And so you got to just, the sound and the size is just massive, right? Yeah, the scale must be just on another level, like the catering, you know, the little things that Yeah, just, catering is great. I mean, yeah, when you're on tour, arena tour is like, yeah, the catering is amazing. Um, <laughs> and then like, yeah, you get, you know. Did you have a rider? Like you were able to like request things? and Oh, that's every show we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so good. It, it always gets better as, as you get better or get bigger. But, uh, and then I think, the Saskatoon show on the Def Leppard tour, like that was just because, you know, I'd been to so many arena shows at SAS place, right. Or whatever it is. Um, so I saw like ACDC there. I saw kiss there. I saw, you know, Pearl jam there. Right. And so for us to play that same venue, it's sort of, it's, it's, it's as big as you can get in this city. Right. And was Saskatoon amped to see you guys. Yeah. I think I had like crazy high expectations. Cause it's like, you know, it's our hometown come, show coming back. But it was it it pretty much met those crazy high expectations. So, you know, and all your families there, um, it was pretty special. And like, and how loud does the crowd feel in there? Because you know, I remember George St. Pierre said that a lot of people can never relate to understanding how because they're in a ring in the middle of this like like cylinder or this like funnel and it funnels all right to you and i i've never been on stage when there's been twenty thousand people yelling pointing directly at you can you really feel that that volume yeah i try and if i sometimes i I try to just really remind myself to just soak it in and be in the present right and that's like i said earlier it's like when you're on stage like you're when i'm on stage like you're not i'm not thinking i'm just feeling you know and that's it's all about just the same thing being in the present right and um and we've got our in-ear monitors in our ears, so it's like it's not quite as loud as you might. Yeah. It would, would be naturally. So, so you I, can, I always you, you take just them out. Probably feel it though. Well, and I take them out too. So I got to feel this right <laughs> yeah. after a song. It's like let me just feel this noise. Um, and so that studio tour, I mean, or the arena tour, like when was that? Uh, I guess that would have been um, four years ago now. Okay, and that was across North America or just Canada. Uh, just Canada and like from Winnipeg West, so mostly Western Canada. Okay. Uh, and then we did another one like a few months later with Judas Priest. Oh, wow. And then we did our third arena tour with uh, Shinedown. That was just like a year ago. Okay. And that was pretty cool too. Um, yeah, it's like, I think if we always toured arenas, it'd be like, that'd be the, the life, you know, it's, it's just, it's so much bigger and. Um, How much just, time do you get to spend with the uh, the opening acts or are you guys quite separated? Like with the headliners, you mean? Like, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Sorry, the headliners. Not well, the I guess it depends on the tour. I mean, it depends on how, if the band wants to interact with you, you know? Right. Def Leppard was cool. I mean, beforehand, our team's like, you know, our management and our agents, like, don't interact with them too much because, like, you know, it, yeah, it, you, it, was, it was our first arena tour. And the, act like you've been there. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, just keep, play it cool, guys, you know? And so we didn't, you know, we, were, we didn't talk to him much, but then I realized that... Joe Elliott, the singer of Def yeah. Leppard, was like a huge fan of um, um, Moth the Hoople, a, oh, yeah, a band, sure. yeah. you know, with uh, all the young dudes and all stuff. All the young and, dudes, yeah. So I just, he was walking in the hallway and I just walked up and I said, Joe, I heard you're a big uh, Ian Hunter fan, like Moth the Hoople, Hoople singer. Yeah. And, and he was just like, oh my God, he just like stopped in his tracks and we, we talked for like half an hour about rock and roll and Ian Hunter and... So from that point on in the tour, it's like Joe and I were besties, you know? And oh, really? So it's just, I mean... I so was a big Def Leppard fan growing up from, like, 87 when they had their album with Pour Some Sugar on Me. Yeah, and Pyromania, was that? 
Yeah, it was the one that had like the weird, it was all black with the yellow lines and it yeah. had like <clears throat> love bites on it as well. Yeah. And, but then I remember watching them here when it was like 10 years ago when they came and I just realized, I'm like, oh, uh, I'm not supposed to be in this demographic of Def Leppard fans. <laughs> like I was like the only Asian guy my age watching Def Leppard, but right, still yeah. kind of spoke to me. Um, when you get matched up with a band like Def Leppard, um, do you guys consider yourself in the same genre as those guys even? Because they're kind of well, pop rock almost. Yeah, and that's a good question, Albert. I mean, I think at the end of the day, rock and roll, it cuts a pretty wide swath, right? Like it's rock and roll, and, and many heinous things have been done in the name of rock and roll, you know? Yeah. Uh, but rock and roll, it's it's a wide term. So I would say when it comes down to it, yeah, like us and Def Leppard, like we're both rock and roll that, you know, that's... Mm that caters to the people that like big guitar, drums, and vocals, right? But, you so, know, in the rock world, and even hard rock or metal, there's all these metal sound. guys would turn their heads at probably Def Leppard, right? And exactly. Aerosmith and uh, yeah. Whitesnake. And it's, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, uh, yeah, and there's always, like, the subgenres and sort of, like, snobbery between them and that for kind sure. of stuff, right? Um, at the end of the day, it's, like, it's rock and roll. So mm-hmm. Def Leppard... There's a respect for both of you guys up there. Totally. And I think... I was always surprised every night where they could fill a stadium and people just be going nuts for them, you know? And mm-hmm. I was like, I can't, I can not judge these guys at all because they've, they've done this for what, 40 years and mm-hmm. they're killing it still. And so, yeah, I, I think there's, there's differences obviously. And then when you go with Judas Priest, it's like, that's more metal. So you, the crowd wanted more hard stuff. So we, you know, we catered to that and made our set a bit harder, you know? Isn't, and, man, I heard somewhere that it was a Judas Priest. I think it is. He's the, uh, isn't the guy like a pilot? I'm not sure, but I think he's a he's, he's an amazing dude. Like we, we met, and he's like super intelligent, and yeah, yeah. I think he, oh, it might have been Iron Maiden or Judas <clears throat> Priest. One of them is like an actual like commercial pilot. Nice. So he probably have a brand like yours, lawyer, drummer, pilot, singer, pilotsinger dot com. <laughs> yeah. So outside of that, do you guys do any like festival touring at all? Like, is that are you guys pretty popular during festivals? Yeah, season? yeah. I mean, summers are like a lot of fun because instead of doing like a, a, a tour of like 10, 20, 30 shows in, in multiple cities, you just do like every weekend you do a summer festival. So mm-hmm. um, I think in general, there's less rock festivals being put on, like, yeah. which is, I guess, just a sign of, of the, the current state of rock. But um, for the rock festivals that exist, yeah, we do them all the time. And like this summer we're, we're doing with uh, Chaos, Alberta in Edmonton mm-hmm. with we're opening for Rob Zombie and Marilyn Manson, so that'll be pretty oh, wow. sweet. Okay, so you guys are still pretty active. Um, and this is kind of my next question is like, <clears throat> where are we in the story arc of the band? Do you feel like the best is yet to come? Do you guys still feel like totally fulfilled and proud of like where you guys are headed? Or yeah, I think we, we've done this for 15 years and I, I think we have easily another 15, you know? Okay. Um, or more. I mean, like, I, I feel like. I don't. I don't see a reason to stop. You know, what I mean, like, you guys still get along. Yeah, that's that's probably the most important thing is that if it's still fun for you guys, right? Um, somewhere I don't know. I I need to verify this, but somebody told me that like Weezer, they so they never talk to each other. They just and this could be totally false, but I heard that they just are under contract, so they just play their shows, separate planes, separate floors, everything, rock on stage, leave, and just take the money. Right. So. Well, I mean, I know the Eagles are like that for sure. Like they, they hate each other, but they make like they make a killing, pretty much yeah. as high as you can make it in this biz. But 
Um, yeah, you hear of that a lot, unfortunately. I think it's a, a combination of many things. Like, you know, familiarity breeds contempt, as the, they say. And in the, you know, in music, it's like, it's not like just having, like, say you got a partnership and you're doing business selling shoes or whatever, and you have four people. It's, you're not putting your heart on the line and bearing your soul as a, as a creative person. You're, you're just selling shoes. Um, a band is just so different. Like you're, you're so many emotions and you're also, it's four people that are, are very emotional, right? Mm-hmm. And creative. So that's where you hear all these horror stories of bands that just like hate each other. Yeah. And there's ego in there. And so much ego. Like this industry is based on ego, right? There's, there's no two ways about ego it. Ego drives you to where you get to, right? Yeah. So I think it's, and all these insecurities too, right? Which of course are tied to ego. Like people come, it's like, if you're just normal and well adjusted, you're you're not going to become a rock star, right? right? You're going to turn into like a guy who sits at a desk and looks like at Excel sheets, like I do. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, I, all the, all that's to say that um, I feel very lucky. Like my bandmates and my bros, you know, and um, I think we have a long way to go. And I still think our best songs are yet to be written. Right. So you guys are always looking for the next kind of. And are, how much are you guys chasing commercial success versus just something that fits with you guys? And just know that the audience will come. I think, I mean, we've never chased commercial success. I think we've just always tried to write the best songs that we can, right? That, that are true to us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's never been a time where like, wow, we've written a song that I think I'm embarrassed. Or like, it doesn't reflect what we're about, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like we couldn't just fake it and write the song that wasn't us. Mm-hmm. So that's at least a good sort of uh, litmus test for any song. It's like... I know this is always us. Yeah. Now, do we like chase the trends or, or think about what the trends are? Not really. I mean, we never have been hip, you know, and that's a mm-hmm. great... Um, it's a good place to be because the trends benefit, die, yeah. right? So if you want to kind of stick around, you might want to pick something. Like the Sheepdogs, I really think that they kind of hit something that it's kind of timeless music, right? So yeah. interesting. Are you guys friends with those guys? Like, Yeah, yeah like I'm, I'm buddies with them all and... and like I was their lawyer in the early days. You know? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's probably you're just the go-to guy, right? You're probably the guy that they go, you, you, we trust you. Yeah. You look like us and you know exactly how uh, we, we can get taken advantage of. So you said that the state of rock and roll is a little bit different. And we had kind of talked off air about this. Um, what do you think's changed so much about it right now? It's, it's a very complex question. I think about it all the time. But, um, you know, I think it's just... Pop and hip hop are sort of like they they rule the charts. They they rule social media. Yeah, they kind of rule pop culture. And I think part of it is you're right. And rock and roll for a time did that as well, right? I mean, and it kind of pops its head up and then goes back down. Like you think about in the early you know fifties, sixties, rock and roll was king. Yeah, and then you know kind of goes away for a bit. Disco comes up, and then eighties, you know MTV, but then then rock comes back too. And then early '90s rock comes back, you know, really, you know the grunge stuff we talked about. Uh, and then it kind of goes away for a bit, and the boy bands come out, and the Spice Girls, and all mm-hmm. that stuff. And then, so now it's just, I think we're in that that time where rock isn't isn't nearly it's not nearly as big as it once was. Mm-hmm. And anyone who says otherwise is just wrong. Like, like it, what fifteen year old is a rock fan. Well, I don't know. There, would, uh, there's lots, but they're listening to Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix and the doors. Like, right. But does that stuff. pave the way for them to find you guys? Hopefully that's the goal, right? Like 
but yeah, you see, you do see 15 year old kids with Led Zeppelin shirts and, and all that stuff, right? They love Hendrix and they love the Beatles and that's awesome. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't see as many of them s- supporting new bands. Right. And so mm-hmm. I don't know, like, I don't know like what caused that, but I think, I think mostly it's just like rock is sort of in a, in a lower point right now, but I th- I do feel that like it could come back. Are people you know? playing instruments like rock, you know, like guitar less than you that you would know? Based on the stats, yeah, you hear these things about like um, like Fender announced or whoever announced it, like their sales have you know been lower than ever, and mm-hmm. so it's like that's part of it too. Is like are ten year olds or twelve year olds are they putting the time in to become as good as like Lennon and McCartney? Probably not because. Lennon McCartney weren't distracted by social media. Video games. There wasn't video games. Yeah. There wasn't all these instant gratification things. Like, like my my opinion or my like my my guess would be that no one, no young kids can become as good as Lennon McCartney t- tomorrow because they don't put the hours in. No. Lennon McCartney put the like ten hours a day playing in clubs in Germany to become exceptional. And you can't just you can't just become exceptional like that. That whole instant gratification thing is probably a huge part. And, you know, you're looking at the youth today and like understand they want things now. Like, you know, they won't even sit on a website that'll load in three seconds. They need something right away. Yeah. And a song that'll play instantaneously. You and I are from the generation of like, oh I'll just download the song, I'll go pack a lunch, then come back and it'll be ready to listen. Yeah. Exactly. You're not gonna all of a sudden Right, helter skelter, um, overnight. You know, yeah. like you have to you have to put in the hours, right? I too was a huge Led Zeppelin, Radiohead, a Lenny Kravitz fan, Guns N' Roses. Obviously, the 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 whole Seattle stuff growing up, and I feel like my shitty industry of like DJing um, somewhat undid a lot of the popularity of like classic, just uh, appreciation of like rock in like from twenty. 20- 2005 to 2015, I think, it felt like everybody started becoming a DJ because the gratification is quicker in that. You can push play and that whole song will play and you get credit for the entire song without having to learn any of the instruments. And it's actually not that hard to mix music because a person who's a drummer, you could probably mix music in 10 minutes from teaching you. Right, yeah, yeah. So sorry for doing that or contributing Well, to I mean... And, and I, we started I, taking a lot of the gigs away, right? You started seeing less live acts of just guitarists and you started seeing a DJ and it was like cliche to see a, a DJ in a lounge or in a bar where, you know, 10 years ago you would have seen a band. Yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, to play devil's advocate, I mean, the bands have to be exceptional too. So you, you take like a, a bar full of people you know, I don't think just the right answer is to put a band in front of them unless they're an exceptional band. Like if you put the Beatles in 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 Hamburg at their peak in front of any crowd today, they should the crowd will be blown away. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like I think um, yeah, and and, and, the, and the Beatles will blow away the, any DJ. They'll blow away Steve Aoki or whatever his name yeah. is. Like, they'll blow them away because yeah. they're doing it themselves and they're, and they're hitting people in the soul, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's like the bands have to be exceptional too, right? For sure. Um, when you're talking about the industry, one thing that's really confused me is, like, especially reading your Wikipedia page, it's talking about hits and charts. Charts were a big deal when we were younger with much music. You'd always kind of see the charts or Billboard had charts. Right. <clears throat> I was trying to, like, look up charts, and, man, they're like boxing belts. Like, there's, like, a, a million different types of charts, it seems, from right. Canadians to, like, welterweight sub, yeah. subgenre, or the WCB and the WBA and the yeah. BCO or whatever. Yeah. Like, what sort of, what do you guys go by for charting? 
whichever one we're higher at. <laughs> um, so how many do you know of? Well, I mean, for, for us, it's easy. Like what's, it's the, on, what's the credible one? It's what's based on radio play. It's like uh, media base or uh, billboard. Like those are the two, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, we got to number one on one of those charts. So we take it, right? Um, I think it's like there is definitely, if you're talking about like charts in rock, there, there, there is like sort of like the two. Um, but yeah, I, to your point, I mean, what really matters now is not so much like, I mean, well, I guess radio spins are one thing, but like Spotify spins are a whole other thing, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. So and you guys are on Spotify. Do you see any like royalty checks from that coming? No, not much. I mean, we're not in like the millions. We have over a couple million, but like mm-hmm. that's the crazy thing about the, the industry. Unless you're at like the seven hundred million, like you don't start to see make, anything. See anything? Yeah. Spotify has to look after themselves and make sure that their platform tomorrow before they can start paying out everybody, I'm sure. So Well, I, I don't know if that's it. I think it's I think the payouts are low and but people also don't pay that much for Spotify, right? So it's it's interesting. I think um there's definitely a a, sh- a paradigm shift that has to happen in terms of like the payment going to artists from Spotify cuz right. if you if you get 100 million streams and don't make anything from it like to me the mm-hmm. the value model is skewed you know so you're playing a game let's play a game that you're forced to try to make as much money as possible with the four guys that you have and it doesn't matter like there's no question about selling out or anything what, what do you guys do like as, as a band now <laughs> that's a great question i've never had that um well i mean i think the easy answer is we just write the greatest song we've ever written you know, because a great song, no matter what the politics are in the music biz, a great song will eventually blow up if it's if it's truly exceptional, right? But um, how's the revenue model look like? Is it? It's touring. Sick? You got to tour. That's it. That's where you the money is. And yeah. you know, and that's a thing where it's like, I got two young kids. I don't want to go on like I don't want to be on tour half the year, and, and half the year is just like scratching the surface. Like if you blow up, you're on the road like ten months of the year, and so that's sort of the. And that's different than it was in the past. I mean, you always made money touring, but mostly you made money from record sales, right? Mm-hmm. Like you toured in order to sell the record, right? Yeah. Uh, that's why you could see Led Zeppelin for $4 or whatever, right? Because they wanted to buy, you to buy the record for $5, yeah. you know? It's opposite um, now. And the Beatles didn't tour for the last five years of their existence, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, it's the opposite. So I think everyone's got to become a road dog. So to your point, if we had a, a runaway hit, we'd have to go like tour like crazy and... Because you do, you don't think you'd be able to like commercialize that into some sort of fortune without touring. Well, I mean, I get. I mean, there's ways like film and TV placements and all that sort of stuff. And okay, and that's kind of where you're, you come in as a lawyer, right, to negotiate those deals. Yeah, and that's kind of a cool way where I can see that, you know, friends and clients of mine can make a little decent sort of side income. Is like, yeah. So is that how you, is that part of your job a bit is to also kind of give them an understanding of, okay, so you have this sort of IP, um, here's some potential ways to monetize it. For sure. Yeah. I mean, that's not my job as a lawyer. Like that's like more of a manager's job or right. whatever, but I do it all the time. Yeah. yeah. It's like the industry or uh, someone I know is making a film and they want a killer song and I'll connect the dots with a client on, on that side, you know, mm-hmm. and, Okay, uh, so from a law perspective, like what do you, what sort of cases are you handling? What sort of things are you actually doing? A lot of it's, so it's like it's contract law, but with cooler clients, you know? So it's like, you know, well, it's like business law with cooler clients. So, yeah. you know, um, 
negotiating contracts between the artist and record label, negotiating a management agreement with a band. And I've got, you know, I'm on either side. So sometimes I represent the, the label, sometimes the manager, but a lot of times the artist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, negotiating, yeah, film and TV placements, right? Where it's like, this song's going to be used in the trailer of a big Hollywood movie. And it's like negotiating what... Man, I've always wondered about that. Um, like, what sort of money is in, in that game? It can be lots. It can be nothing. Like, small films will be... Give, here's a hundred bucks. And here, so if I was to write one song and the Avengers wanted to use it in their trailer. If it was Avengers, like, yeah, it'd be... What do you think you'd be asking? Six, seven figures. I mean... Just for me to give them that right. If it was Avengers, yes. Yeah. Um, like, you think about, like, uh, like Iron Man used all ACDC songs. Like, that's in the six, seven... Well, yeah. seven figures for sure. Um, but a lot of times it's like, you know, even a smaller artist, if, if a song's used in, like, a indie hit movie... Yeah. You know, um, you're looking at like it can be 50, 60, 70 grand. So it's oh, like really? a decent little payday for What about a commercial, like a, a nationally syndicated commercial, like Bell wants to use your song? Yeah. Again, again these, everything's so different. Like it depends mm-hmm. on the, the circumstances, right? How much of the song is being used, how big the artist is, how big the company is. But, yeah. you know, uh, I just did a deal with an art, uh, an actor that's, um, you know, uh, 1.9 million, and I think that's US, you know. Just uh, like an actor in a commercial, yeah. Oh, well, that's so awesome. that's not it's not musician, but that's you know actor, right? So is it? Do you think they get paid a little bit more in the acting world than musicians? If they're a big actor, yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah. you have to be kind of a name. Yeah. Have you ever thought about doing a Christmas album? Because to me, that was going to be my answer: is to do a Christmas album. Hopefully, get in Love Actually too. You know what I mean? Or some sort of. Uh, perpetuity where you're going to see it every year or yeah. a graduation song, a Thanksgiving song, an Easter song. Yeah. Well, there's always, or like uh, one of my favorite artists, uh, Warren Zevon, like Werewolves of London, yeah. every, every Halloween, right? Yeah. Or the Monster Mash every Halloween. So I think, yeah, those songs are like those gold mines where, has and that, yeah, Christmas, same thing. Christmas Has, has that it, ever crossed your guys' mind to try to write something for... No, I mean, season? It, it did, but it, it wasn't like our idea, but our label said, we do this Christmas album every year, do you want to write a song? And so we wrote a song, but it, it, it wasn't a cover, like everyone else, you know, you write, you yeah. cover a Christmas song, right? Yeah. You don't write one, but we thought, well, let's write one, and it's not, it's not about Christmas, it's, it's about the holiday season, and actually like sort of the darkness involved, and how you don't, you know, you miss your family, and if you're on tour, or if you're away, generally speaking, for non-musicians, it's like, it's sort of like a dark December and that, yeah. that's what we called it. And it's, it's uplifting, but also has a dark side to it. And so that's the one song we've written. So you actually wrote one. Yep. And it's, and it's out, it's out there, you know, it's on Spotify. What's it called? Dark December. Dark December. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Maybe they'll get picked up one day. Yeah. It has to be like a dark Christmas movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, somebody told me you're a, a big wino. Who told you that? Travis. Nice. He said that, uh, he's like, ask him about his whole wine world. Uh, it's, perfectly fitting to know that you now like the way that you're dressed the way that you look is like you're now the new graduated version of kurt that i used to know and <laughs> which was what yeah that yeah, i'm curious what what but, what version i'm graduating from you know but i said you look like a guy who'd be courtside at a clippers game you, like you have that eccentricity about you that would look like you're some like famous art collector who's famous in the wine industry so it's not a surprise um i think it's a comment <laughs> Totally. No, it is. Like, yeah, courtside, that means you're successful and eccentric. <laughs> you don't want to look like an accountant. No, no, exactly. no. Exactly. But uh, you, so you're big in the wine world? 
Well, I just, I love wine. I mean, it's like, uh, it's become a passion, you know, and he said uh, that you're ranked. I don't even know what that even means. Oh no. It's just this app that people use called Vivino. And it's like, you just, yeah, it's like you do rate it, do reviews of wine and it's like Yelp for wine. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I mean, it's like Instagram for wine, really. Okay. Like you just, you you got a persona and, and you post photos of your wine and maybe of yourself in the photo and whatever, and, but do reviews of the wine. And, um, yeah, it's like, whatever, I'm in the top 10 in Canada, like just ranking wine. So you're like a wine influencer. Does I guess, you know, or I'm always under the influence of wine. One of the two, yeah. <laughs> either, either or. That's pretty neat. Okay, let's switch gears to the last bit of here um, that you and I are going to be, I don't know, we might be potentially matched up, but we're both in that sanctum. What do you, what do you call it to your friends? Like, I just go, I'm in this homeless challenge. Yeah, I just say sanctum survivor, and then I kind of explain. But yeah, we, we might be pitted against each other on the street, too. You know, exactly. like we might be, like, fighting on the street. Well, the funny thing is that <laughs> you could it pass for more of a homeless guy than I could. Thank you. I take that as a compliment. Well, you're a rock star. You have to look somewhat homeless, right? Like I, there's no way I can even grow what you have if I spent a year for facial hair. <laughs> and nobody's going to believe I said an Asian guy who's homeless in the city. Like, <laughs> you just don't, maybe in Vancouver, but you just don't see them here, right? It's true. Yeah. For some reason. And uh, even in Vancouver, I feel like you never like, yeah. If you do, it's, you, you notice it for sure. But, yeah. uh, um, so yeah, how did you get pulled into that and recruited? Well, it was like, you know, I, I know some people involved and I think, you know, they mentioned it to me a couple of years ago like when it first started and I was super, uh, interested in the idea and, and, and passionate about the idea behind it and, and the whole cause. And I was always on tour or we just had a baby yeah. or whatever, you know, and so the timing worked out. Yeah. Yeah. And this year it's like, they asked me and I was like, yeah, let's just do it. it it's I always talk about wanting to better my community and it's like, you got to put your money where your mouth is sometimes, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's for people who don't know, it's going to be 36 hours where you and I, and, and there's going to be eight other people and other people like the president of university, the chief of police, um, pretty heavy hitters. We're all going to be living outside. I, I heard that the men can choose to sleep outside, but the, the women have the choice whether they want to go sleep indoors that there are certain things, but I think I'm going to try to rough it outside. How about you? Yeah. Well, my understanding is like, we we don't know what, what fate we're going to be be dealt. So I mean, like, yeah, I imagine I'll be outside and, uh, I mean, mostly I'm just, I'm excited, not for the actual, you know, the the harshness of it, but just the The experience, creating awareness. Right. And I see it already. Like people, I've been talking about nonstop since I, you know, since I confirmed I was going to do it. And like people have no idea that we've got like the highest rates of HIV in North America, not even just Mm -hmm. in Canada, in North America. And they're like, what? Like not in my backyard sort of thing. And, um, and it's interesting because there still is very much a stigma with, with that. Right. For sure. You talk about even just homelessness, people are like, wow, they could have like these people could have made better choices in their life, you know? And then you say, and you add the HIV component and they're like, Oh, like that's definitely a choice, you know. Like they, yeah. they chose to kind of make bad decisions, right? How many of them have been born with it, right? So yeah, or just I mean, or born with just like circumstances, like every card possible was was dealt against them, right? Yeah. And it's like you and I, you know, we have so much privilege, right? So um, we can't even relate to understand how they got into that situation. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm barely clinging on sometimes, and I had every chance to succeed. Yeah, well, then that's a great point. Like. I think we're all, we like to sort of other people, you know, and sort of like, well, 
I, I worked hard. I made, I made good decisions and now I'm here where I am. And it's like, in reality, we're all just a few bad decisions or, or, you know, just, um, I think bad twist of fate away from, or a few paychecks away from, from being exactly. in a similar situation. Right. So yeah, it's, I, I was blown away by just even going into the care home there. Um, I don't know if you had a chance after orientation to kind of walk around the halls. And so I went across the street to go to the other one. And the other one is the uh, the one that we were in, that room was the nursery. 5. Yeah. And then the one across is the the hospice situation. So it's where people are kind of like on their deathbed. And uh, that, was a pre- that was pretty eye-opening just to go in there and to know that, yeah, we do have the highest rate. There's only 10 beds there. And it's probably not even close to how many we actually need. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I imagine that's, um, it's pretty heavy, right? It, it is super heavy. And I, I keep saying, like, I don't like raising funds. I, I, I don't like forcing my friends and guilting them into, like, you know, giving me money. Or, and I don't like using my social channels to do this sort of stuff because I know how it feels when people do it to me. But right, I said... Yeah. I will go through this one month of awkward conversation and, and begging for, for people to donate to my cause because that's one month of being uncomfortable opposed to these people who have their entire life yeah. that's uncomfortable, right? Totally, so yeah. That's nothing. Like, yeah, I can still go to sleep in this nice home. And um, I said, that's the least I could do. And even living outside. I know it's going to be like an experience, but at the same time... It's, it's over, there's an end point. There's an end point. We know that this is, and we have people watching us 24 hours a day. Yeah. Um, so we can't pretend that we're hard after that. We just have to just do it to bring awareness. And I'm super excited that you're uh, going to be doing that with me. Maybe we'll get matched up. I have a feeling because we're the kind of the younger guys, we'll probably have to go with a couple of the yeah. older dudes, <laughs> yeah. um, which is going to be fine. Um, do you have a strategy of what you're, or are you just going to go no, in there? And- no strategy at all, man. I mean, I haven't thought a lot about the actual 36 hours. I've just been focusing on, you know, raising yeah. awareness and just, you know, you know talking about and it. And I know this isn't going to probably make it to, to the internet yet, but uh, we can still talk about you have your, um, your show on Friday, right? Yeah. Are there still tickets available for like, a guy yeah, there's some. Okay. Yeah. Cause I'll, I'll probably go buy a ticket and try to, great, I, I have some friends coming up who said they're going to that show. And I said, Oh, if you guys Very are going to cool, go, yeah. I'm going to go They're from Hazlet. They're coming up oh, for awesome. that show. So well, tell them to come say hi. Like okay, just introduce themselves for sure. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll stop by with them. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's our first club show in this city in like eight years. So really? Yeah. So are, are all the band guys back in Saskatoon then? Yeah. I mean, our singers in Calgary, but we just, we, I flew them in for this show. You oh, know, that's awesome. Yeah. It's like the Weezer thing. I fly them in, but we don't, don't talk, talk to each other. Just go on stage and just, that's awesome. Hey, well, Kurt, you know, I was really, I'm really, really pumped that you were able to come in here and just give a little like light to the, what you've been doing in the last uh, decade and a it's bit. It's an honor, man. It's an honor. I'm excited to do the Sanctum thing. I do have a, a parting gift as always, which is uh, like picking out a record. So go down to the old vinyl exchange downtown. Nice. A nice dollar bin of records. But I go through that and I spend some time thinking of, what records would be perfect for the guests? And tomorrow I have Betty Ann Hagee coming in here. But I picked for you this one called Rhinestone Country. Nice. Even though you're hard rock, I feel like... I love the country. Whole, the whole idea of Rhinestone Country is that it's a little bit kind of glitzy and glamoury version of what country's all about. And I feel like you're maybe that in the whole hard rock scene as well. I love it, man. Thank you so okay. much. Anyways... It's been a pleasure, and uh, man, I'll see you Friday, and hopefully you and I survive that 36 hours together. Okay, awesome. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it.
Thanks for listening. One more thing before you go, though. Please join me in support of my campaign to raise funds and awareness for the Sanctum Group, which is all about supporting people living with HIV-AIDS who we all know deserve better. On May 30th, I will be living homeless for 36 hours as my effort to bring awareness and donations to this great cause. For more information on how to help, please go to sanctumcaregroup.com and follow the links to the Sanctum Survivor 2019 Challenge where you can find my page and donate. Thank you and we'll talk to you soon. Walk the line, waste my songs. You had style, you had charm. You had style, you had charm